Hello, and welcome to The Appetite, a podcast brought to you by Opal Food and Body Wisdom, an eating disorder program in Seattle, Washington. The Appetite is all about issues of food, body, sport, and mental health. I'm your host, Carter Umhow, a therapist, artist, and writer, and today we have Chrissy Hughes in the studio with us talking about the implications and story around sport retirement. Hi, Chrissy. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah. And we also have uh, Opal co-founder Kara Bazzi here today, too. Hi. It's great to be here. It's really fun to be able to do this episode with Chrissy. Mm -hmm. Um, We're both on the sport and exercise team at Opal, and it's been just a joy to have her be a part of this team and bring her on into the staff. Um, So tell us, what what do you do at Opal? I am a primary therapist as well as an exercise experiential therapist. Sometimes I have a hard time explaining what it is because it's not a typical way of doing therapy, I found. So it's um, a live therapy session where we're exploring clients' relationship with movement and exercise and sport. So we're not sitting in a room um, doing traditional talk therapy. We're outside often in the community doing different types of um, activity and noticing what comes up for them. Mm-hmm. It's neat because there aren't very many treatment centers that offers this type of therapy. And so this was part of the sports programming that we developed early on was to offer these individual experientials, knowing that to actually do the movement itself while you're working on it therapeutically, a lot more can happen. A lot more change can occur through the exposure work. And so we have had someone in this position uh, maybe two years into the start of Opal. And, and Chrissy is one of our current exercise experiential therapists and is great in the role. (laughs) She does a great job. So you'll actually go out and about and do what sorts of things? All different kinds of things. This week alone, I've gone swimming. Uh, I've gone to the gym, play pickleball, basketball. (laughs) Um, Was going to paddleboard. Yep, went to paddleboard. We've been ice skating for Movement Groove. That's not an individual experiential, but Mm, which brings us <laughs> to the reason why you're here. What is your relationship with skating? Well, I uh, was a competitive figure skater for a long time. I started when I was five years old, and I retired when I was just almost 19 and ended up going back and doing a, another stint a few years later. So skating's a big part of my life, or at least it, it has been historically, and it's, I would say it's still a part of who I am at this point today, even though I don't, it looks really differently. What, what did it look like day to day back then? Well, when I was in kind of the, the most intense part of my career, skating showed up in my life pretty much every single day. I skated six days a week, had one day off, got up early, early. I was on the ice at six o'clock in the morning and skated for a couple hours before school. Then I went and did a full day of school. And then something in the afternoon was, I was either on the ice or doing some type of off ice training. And then would kind of go home, do homework and go to bed and then How did do you it all again. Repeat, repeat. <laughs> I know. I, yeah, looking back, I don't know. Uh, before I started driving, I was really good at doing homework in the car and changing mm-hmm. in the car and doing a lot of multitasking. I, when you say that, I think, well, I'm sure you figured out how to do homework because you were already skating. Like that mm-hmm. your day was from such a young age already defined by that. So as I might think about, oh, well, homework is the priority. Mm-hmm. It sounds like skating was your priority first mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Yep. Yep. There was a lot of structure around it. And one thing, I guess, just to say in hearing you talk about that 
um, in the life of a serious competitive athlete, there's not a lot of free time. Mm-hmm. So you always knew what you, where you had to be mm-hmm. and what time. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. My day-to-day was pretty prescribed. I didn't, there wasn't a lot of creativity or thought that had mm-hmm. to go or into choice, it. choice, right? Mm-hmm. 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 Which has implications that we'll be talking about. <laughs> <laughs> <Thank> teaser. <laughs> Sorry. No, I just I had to give that. the teaser. It's, it's good. <laughs> um, so speaking of which, like, how did you think about kind of your identity as a skater during those 14 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I think back then in the midst of it, I probably could have told you I had a pretty strong identity around skating, but it didn't really sink in until I stopped. So like at school, most people knew me as the ice skater. That's kind of a label that I had. And people in the skating community, um, particularly in the local skating community, knew who I was. So I was, yeah, I was pretty well known by most people by by skating family events you know how's skating is the Mm -hmm. the first question that I would get asked and the updates would encourage people to ask it the next time that they saw me so it was it was very much a part of who I was but I didn't I didn't realize how deep that ran until I had retired and had to figure out what to do next do you remember how that felt that people knew you in that way and would that many people were asking you that question of how skating was and they they weren't having as much variety with the rest of the questions but what what is it what did it feel like Mm -hmm. it probably hit me on two different levels I'm more reserved I'm a little bit shy so I wouldn't typically put that out there for myself so then the fact that people were noticing and I didn't have to put it out there felt really good Mm -hmm. and then yeah like I I was special in a way I did I was different at school I always got to miss first period in the morning um, because I was at the rink skating. There was something that skating allowed me in, in being different, and that felt really good. And then for, for a lot of my career, I was pretty successful, especially locally. And so I often had positive responses to give um, about how skating was going. And, yeah, it felt really good to be recognized. So how did retirement come about for you? It sounds, from what you've shared so far, like skating was going really well. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of reward in it. Mm-hmm. Why did you retire? It kind of came as a sudden decision for me. I, yeah, it was things were going really well, particularly locally, regionally, sectionally. And then on the national and international levels, you know, it's a lot more competitive yeah. there. And so I was doing I mean, my best, generally speaking, and ending up middle, lower end of the the results ended up in the middle of the pack. That level of competition just started to really get to me. I, I didn't handle the pressures of that super well. I don't think that I was totally attuned to that at the time anyway. My my coach, we were flying back from a international competition in Germany and it hadn't it kind of it had gone kind of like what I was saying, bottom, middle of the pack. And he asked me to do some soul searching around what I wanted to do for the rest of that season. We were just going into the qualifying season. And that question just totally threw me off because retiring was something that I hadn't ever really thought of. It was just, you know, I, I knew what the rhythms of the seasons of the day. And um, I just did kind of like one foot in front of the other, just kept on going. And so when he asked me, it was like, whoa, I never thought of that before. But then I think it tapped into something of like, oh, yeah, this is there is a lot of pressure. This is really hard. And, oh, I have the option to do something else. And so I decided, 
yeah, that I wanted that that season to be my last. So from soul searching to like just really taking it as an ending, an opportunity for an ending. Yeah, and there was some back and forth. So I had I had decided that regionals, which was going to be uh, three or four weeks out, would be my final competition. And regionals is a qualifying competition. So if you place in the top four, then you get a place um, to go to sectionals. And um, if you get a place at sectionals in the top four, then you, you move on to nationals. And so given um, kind of the status of our, of our region and my uh, skill, I was likely going to place in the top four at regionals and have a, have a chance to go to sectionals. But I had decided initially that I would go to regionals and have that be it for me. Um, I would kind of give up my place um, at sectionals. And so I went to regionals thinking that this was going to be it, and it was really emotional. I had been to regionals, I think I think that was my 13th or 14th oh, wow. every single year, um, every October wow. for pretty much my whole life, and this was going to be it. And so I, it went really well. I ended up winning. It was a Saturday, and I think I had until Tuesday to turn in my paperwork or not for sectionals. And so it really came down to the wire, and I ended up thinking, you know, if I, if I don't go— I'll always wonder what if, and I think at that point I had decided to give up my place because I was afraid of going to sectionals and not qualifying for nationals. Oh, wow. And I think I the soul-searching led me there to realize that I was kind of stepping out because of fear. So I had thought, you know, if I, if I do that, I'll always wonder if I would have made it. So I decided to go to sectionals. That was a that was a lot of emotion that competition too because it was potentially my last, but I didn't want it to be. I wanted to go to nationals, and I barely squeaked out. I got fourth, so I I earned a spot um, at nationals, and so nationals in January was ended up being my last competition. What did it feel like I to know. be in your last competition, getting on the ice that day, and knowing it was the last time? Yeah, it was so surreal. There was a particular kind of pressure on this. And I think some of it had shifted for me away from, you know, trying to beat the other competitors. And it became at that point more about what it meant for me and my process. I have this very distinct memory of walking up to the boards before I had put my skates on and kind of just taking the whole arena in. And I had gone to nationals. This was my fourth time, fourth year in a row. And just kind of like, wow, what this place is, what happens in this place, how to earn this place, and really took in what it meant for me and the, like the privilege of what it, what it was to be there and just the smell of the ice and the temperature and the noise of the crowd. And I was a lot more present, I would say, knowing it was my last. And then I ended up skating really well in my long program, which was it. And it's funny looking back and watching the video, it all seems so like it happened so quickly, but I remember really mm-hmm. slowing myself down. And I, I got emotional on the ice, which was not something that typically happened for me back then. It happens a lot more now, I would say. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was I got really tearful and just tried to take the moment in as much as I could, knowing that I'd never be back. Jeez. Yeah. You see. <laughs> Gosh, you telling the story mm. is tearing me up. Of course, mm-hmm. you were crying and emotional mm-hmm. on the ice that day. Mm-hmm. Oh, what a beautiful thing, though, that you got to like really intentionally walk through those last moments, knowing that you were doing so mm-hmm. and that you could 
remember those details and slow down your breath and take in everything. Yeah. Not everyone has the privilege of doing that when they finish their careers. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So as as we focus, I think, particularly on the retirement period, what did you start learning about yourself and also about your career as a skater once you were done? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I felt a mix of a lot of relief um, when I first retired and then that kind of quickly morphed into some devastation and confusion. The relief came I think from the pressure of like not having to be on the ice every day, not having to deal with like wanting to perform really well. And then the relief also came in my relationship with food and my body because I was struggling a lot with that while I was skating and I think that was some of the pressure that I was referring to earlier that I just had too much shame to deal with while I was in the midst of it. And so um, I actually started going to therapy really soon after I got back from nationals and went to address my relationship with food. And so there was just so much relief that I experienced in being able to talk about that and name that and get some help around that for the first time. So that was a big part of what was happening for me kind of immediately following retirement. But then then it kind of settled in and was like, what do I do with my time? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah. And who am I now that I'm not Chrissy, the figure skater? And that was really devastating. And that ended up being a lot of my work in therapy, too, was around identity and who am I? What am I if I'm not a skater? Mm-hmm. How did you start answering those questions? Um, well, I still went to the rink um, yeah. a lot because that was what I had known. Like you it was say that in such a sneaky way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think looking back now, um, it's like of course I went to the rink. Like what else yeah. did I know? And so part of part of figuring out what else there was was to go back and return and try to do it differently. And that was hard at first because I'm such a like a worker and a trainer and that's what I showed up to the rink every day doing and knowing like I didn't know anything differently and so it was awkward to be there and I remember running my programs and my coach being there and being like you know I wasn't training anymore but um, that's kind of what it appeared like I was doing. The questions were answered very very slowly Um, and I think a big way that I answered that was actually through my I studied exercise science in my undergraduate in my, my senior thesis was a project around sport retirement and looking at the effects that sport retirement has on, it was specifically figure skaters, but just athletes in general too. And so it was, it was really neat to see myself in a lot of the research and a lot of the things that I was reading and realize like, oh, whoa, retirement is a thing for other people. It's, it's not just easy and it's not just something that happens. It's a process that people go through and it can be really hard. What um, did you find out in in your research? Well, I looked specifically at the effects on physical health, psychological health, and social health. And I learned that there's a lot of variety that happens for people as they transition out of sport, but there's also a lot of struggle. So people's bodies change, you know, if they go from a lot of hours of training to sometimes, you know, a more sedentary lifestyle, their bodies are going to shift and that impacts, it can impact their physical health, but then that also has a pretty strong impact psychologically. A lot of the psychological stuff is around identity and kind of asking some of those questions that we were just talking about of who am I and what am I worth if I'm not winning medals and standing on the top of the podium. Um, And then socially, things can really shift for people if they're used to um, having a lot of interactions and friendships and just relationships in general that are relating around someone's sport. If they remove sport from their life, then 
can they still get along with those people? Do they have something to relate around? And then also kind of moving outside of those sport relationships, if if they've been so consumed, do they do they know things? Can they relate with people that that don't have a sports background? I saw myself in a lot of it, and I didn't see myself in a lot of it. I think you also mentioned like the the nature of the retirement of whether it's by choice. Do you want to speak to or you know the different forms of retirement yeah. or how people leave sport? Yeah. So in the research that I did, I found four kind of categories of the way that people retire. One is age. So their age can kind of determine if they're able to participate or not. Injury. Um, so sometimes if people are injured, then they they don't have the option to keep playing or participating deselection so that would be like kind of being kicked off the team or not making the cut and then the fourth one is free choice in the broad categories three of them are involuntary and then the free choice would be voluntary and some of the research shows that if people have agency if they're making the decision themselves the transition can tend to be easier and if it's not chosen then they can have more struggle that makes me wonder what it would have been like if I hadn't chosen my um, retirement because I did have so much struggle but even within that, the voluntary side, people would say that, like, I think this was the case for me that I, I technically I chose it, but I probably wouldn't have chosen it if I was handling the pressure better and if I was mm-hmm. like really successful on the national level. So so it was chosen, but it was chosen because of factors that I didn't have control mm-hmm. over. And I just think it's interesting, like thinking about my sport retirement experience. I, I was in a sport with distance running that you can continue to do. It's more accessible. And I think, you know, something like figure skating or gymnastics or some of these other sports, maybe it's more difficult to access once you're done with like the highly competitive time. Mm -hmm. So for me, I ended with an injury. So it wasn't by choice in my collegiate experience, but then I could still reenter back into racing. Mm -hmm. And I just have thought about that for how... I mean, you did have a stint going mm-hmm. back into the skating that you're probably going to talk about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, just the accessibility is a little different depending on the sport. Yeah. Well, and I can still go to the rink um, if I choose to, but it's, it's yeah, the it's more recreational. There's not an outlet for the competition the competitive part, as part, much. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It'd be weird if your sport was something like fencing. And like <laughs> you, you can't really do that recreationally in the same way. You require an opponent. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. You require an opponent. That's a good Mm -hmm. way to put it, that both of you could do – you could skate by yourself. Kara, you could run by yourself Mm -hmm. and not necessarily in competition, but something that was personal in Mm -hmm. pursuing it alone. Mm -hmm. So you did go back and skate eventually, Chrissy. I did, yeah. (laughs) So as I was working on my senior thesis, I was also – I got back on the ice and was preparing – to go to collegiate nationals. So this collegiate nationals, is um, you have to be a full-time student in order to participate. So my, my hope was that I could kind of apply the things I had learned in the last three years, two and a half years or so, that I was someone more than just a skater. I could be Chrissy the person and Chrissy the athlete and get back on the ice. So um, I trained for, I would say, 10 months or so, maybe close to a year, and I went to collegiates. <laughs> I don't really know what else to say about that. Well, what did you what did you discover by doing it with Chrissy person plus Chrissy athlete? Um, I discovered it was really hard. Yeah. It was yeah, that like athlete muscle was so there, my achiever, my perfectionist, like the the harsh self-critic was there. But I also found that it felt really good. Mm. I was eating a lot more intuitively at that point and I was 
trying to like own who I was on the ice, be a lot more involved in the decision-making process, um, kind of around my choreography and my music and the, the details that I would just kind of default to someone else. And so, yeah, it felt really good. It was hard though. Like it, it was different than I was used to. And like I was saying, it's so, everything was so routine for me in skating so that when I went back and tried to do it differently, I was working against such a familiar routine. But it also made it really cool to um, go back and apply all the things that I'd worked so hard on and do it with the same people that had been with me the whole time. What Did you notice any shift in relationship with the people that you were doing it with, like your coach? I think that we both, well, and my choreographer, the three of us, came at it with a little bit more of a relaxed posture. Mm-hmm. Like it, fun was more of a part of what we did. I remember some of my lessons being maybe what someone would see from the outside as like less productive. Maybe that's from like the narrow achiever yeah. athlete mindset. Um, but it was it was actually really productive because we were having fun and, um, you know, learning and growing at the same time. Mm-hmm. And the environment at Collegiates was so much different. That was fascinating. Like everyone else was, I mean, I don't know the specifics of their experiences, but it seemed like from the outside people were generally showing up as like a student athlete. They had to have both identities and just kind of a more holistic approach than like the mainstream nationals. It was, it was all about doing your best and winning and qualifying Mm -hmm. for international and, um, and denying other parts of yourself kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All your eggs are in the one basket. Yeah. Yeah, people would like cheer each other on, which didn't oh. typically happen. Yeah, well, <laughs> in the other scene. Yeah, yeah, wow. So I love getting to hear that you've had so much. What I hear as like agency in the process of retirement. Like you said that there, it would have been maybe a little bit different if you hadn't, and that also you got to go back in with such strength and curiosity and collaboration in the collegiate nationals. I I wonder if from your, the experiences that you have had and the ones that you've created sort of for yourself and all of that, would you have advice for other athletes or coaches in particular around how people could be prepared for retirement before they're actually done? Mm-hmm. Well, I think first and foremost, I would say encourage people to recognize that as a thing that's going to happen. Retirement. Yeah. Yeah. Like they're not going to be an athlete for the rest of their lives. Um, Think big picture. Yeah. I mean, it sounds so obvious as I'm saying this, but it really wasn't for me. I hadn't thought of it. So just knowing that it's going to end and something else is going to take its place. And just to get curious about what that might be. Kara and I lead the Rethinking Sport and Exercise Process group together, and one of the activities that we do is an identity pie chart, and we have clients kind of look at um, all the things that make up who they are. Something like that, I think I would encourage people to do, is just ask themselves who they are and what makes up their identity, what that is today, and then what it might be in a year or five years or however many or months even. Mm-hmm. And even, you know, student athletes or athlete, professional athletes, people that are serious in athletics don't have, I mean, the reality is there isn't a lot of extra time. And I think that some of that identity work, I think it is realistic to be able to do some of that while you're in the context of your sport. Um, it might not be something that you feel the need to do because you're kind of fulfilled by a lot of yeah. your sport. Your your sport um, attends to a lot of your important human needs. 
But again, having some forethought into that extreme change and, and transition that comes when the sport isn't there in the same way. And so it's, it's harder for, to be motivated when it isn't in the present moment. And especially for a young athlete who doesn't think about the future really anyways, this is why I think the coach can, can play a major role because the coach can have that wisdom and they might need to bring the wisdom to the young athlete because of course, as, as a kid, we all know we're not necessarily thinking about our five, 10, 15 year plans. Right. <laughs> right. So I also can imagine it would be so counterintuitive too when, uh, if everything is about you winning to go from this competition to the next one to the next one, if there is some break in that focus to say, oh, but you know, what kind of vacation do you want to go on in six years? Or <laughs> do you want to be so like reading this book? It, that you wouldn't be as focused on the competition at hand and therefore wouldn't have the same sort of energy for. But this doing. is where I would actually argue that if if that was a, a coach's fear or an athlete's concern, my felt experience of being in athletics is the more that you do connect to yourself as a whole person, you can, I believe, and I, I've found this to be true for myself, I can perform better because going back to what Chrissy mentioned about that performance anxiety. So if you're not working on any other parts of yourself, you are way more apt to go down the hole of performance anxiety. And, you know, research backs this up that if we're in really heightened performance anxiety, our performance goes down. I think the more that we can connect to other parts of ourselves, the more relaxed we can be in our competition that can actually yield better performance results. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think one of the things that in, in my story was helpful was that I went to public school full-time and a lot of my competitors didn't because the focus was so narrow and just on skating. So that's something that parents um, and coaches can can focus on is like how can we make sure that we're building up the different parts of ourselves alongside the athlete part? I, I'm curious because you guys both have such beautiful perspective on team environment and like sort of relationship with coaches and being part of a sport, but you're both therapists and both work within a sport and exercise program at Opal and are both sitting with athletes regularly. In this similar vein, what would you think is helpful for therapists or different clinicians or different team members more in the mental health sphere to know about working with an athlete or a retired athlete? that it's really important to get back to that identity work. I think if you don't, if you don't relate to it as a provider, if that hasn't been a part of your experience, it is, I think, really important just to really learn about the role of athletics in their life and then how it's translating. So if they're no longer actively participating in sport, realizing that it still can be a major part of their identity or their orientation towards life. We, we kind of talk about like the athlete mindset and and so to be attuned and attentive to how that person has been impacted by their sport or currently impacted by their sport and and making sure that that's a, a really integrated part of treatment. Yeah. What would you say, Chrissy? As much as possible, getting a feel for what the day to day was like for the person, what they saw on a regular basis, what they smelled and felt and heard and just kind of like as much as possible, get the nitty gritty felt sense of what that was like um so you you kind of know what you're working with and in, in the other person's felt experience of what it was like for them to be an athlete i'd add one really cool way of doing that is watching video so we've done that with 
We've done that with our clients. Uh, if they have anything, especially with competition where things were recorded, or even if it's within their sport, but it's a, a video of not of them, that could be a way to get more of a felt experience because it's you're taking in more of the senses when you're watching a video versus hearing about something. Mm -hmm. So that can be a cool way of absorbing somebody's experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I did that in my therapeutic process, and it was really powerful to hear my therapist's experience of me on video versus what was happening for me at the time internally. It was a really different experience, and that was powerful. Oh, that's striking to think about sort of uh, particularly in figure skating, maybe the performance of it. Um, I say particularly in figure skating because I think the entire world loves watching figure skating in a really particular way because of the performance of it. I can't mm -hmm. figure out a different word, but the beauty of it and the awe and the technique so to think about someone watching that with you and you actually getting to narrate something internally that maybe mm -hmm. wasn't as elegant <laughs> as what people were seeing. That's mm -hmm. so cool. Yeah. Oh, that just reminded me. I think that would be another thing for a clinician to think about is that awe, that awe response of it's so easy to be kind of enamored by mm -hmm the athlete. And that's not necessarily a bad thing because it could be really beautiful, but that could be the other piece that gets really missed with the athlete is their internal experience because they've been used to being so recognized externally for what they've done to achieve. And so that's also something to be aware of that you're interested in what's going on internally in the, in the midst of having maybe some awe and maybe talking about what that's like, that you're expressing awe <laughs> and checking that out with with the client. Yeah. The last thing I would say on that is getting clear about what language is helpful for the athlete or former athlete to use. I know I was really sensitive around the word retire. I was intentional about that language um, versus quitting. That was a particular thing for me. And you never know what it'll be for the person that you're sitting with. Mm -hmm. Chrissy, earlier you said that when you retired, just figuring out what to do with your time was such a huge question. So I'm wondering as well about kind of how you would think through, yeah, the athlete mindset in terms of just temperament and the way that the day is spent, not just necessarily with the sport, but the way that your brain is impacted by doing the sport all the time and how that might impact identity or lifestyle or goals for the present day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for me, it was a lot of trial and error. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I It was uh, good timing for me because I was in college and I was living in the dorms. So I had a lot of natural community built in and a lot of natural opportunities for things to do. But I didn't know how to like use my I didn't I didn't know how to find an outlet for my um, movement self, my mover. And I remember one of my friends one day walking through the dorms and just kind of asking, does anyone want to? do a race with me, a, a running race. It's like, well, sure, I guess I will. <laughs> and I hadn't ever run. And that was not something that I was really interested in doing. But it was like, oh, someone's giving me a goal. Someone's giving me something tangible to do with movement. Great. Sign me up. And that was what I did. And it, it was fun. And it was social. And my friend graduated before me. And I after that, it was like, this is, it's really not my thing. It's not my thing, but it, it fulfilled a need for me at the time. Mm -hmm. And I think that people are probably just going to have to, you know, trial and error and find out what, what works for them and what doesn't. It's also, yeah, a vulnerable time for somebody to develop an eating disorder because of that, because of sort of investing in something kind of day in and day out and seeing something being achieved that can be a really vulnerable time 
for someone to turn towards food to quote unquote, like achieve and win. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I also think a lot of people end up trying to find the movement achieving outlet. Like I think a lot of people end up going to things like CrossFit or especially if they're an adult, like what do they have access to that they can still have numbers and goals and it can be really difficult to tap into creativity tap into play tap into pleasure that's another one pleasure is a big one (laughs) um because there's so much denial of pleasure to be an athlete Mm -hmm. like there's a lot you're you're turning off to keep working to keep working Mm -hmm. going back to the research that i was talking about earlier Changes can happen in people's bodies as they transition out of sport, sometimes not always. And some of what makes people vulnerable is them not wanting their bodies to change or having feelings about their bodies changing and um, turning to food and exercise sometimes as a way to try to prevent their body from changing like it would naturally. Mm -hmm. So, yes, such a vulnerable time. Yeah. I'm just like, gosh, even having to figure out like, wow, how do I set a schedule for myself totally. that is meaningful? Mm-hmm. And is it okay if it's not meaningful mm-hmm. too? I mean, that, that feels like a big question too, just that everything would have a purpose. Mm-hmm. So if you're eating or if you're moving, that there would be some goal-oriented action um, attached to it. It feels like a rug is getting pulled out from underneath you in some ways. Yeah. And the sad part is that a lot of kind of the sport organizations and systems haven't had resources to help athletes go through that normal, like that struggle, that transition. And it's kind of baffling to me with all the money that's in sports that that's been, there hasn't been the resources to help people exit and transition. Um, The NCAA, I learned at the Female Athlete Conference in Boston last month that the NCAA is is recognizing this more and started a program called Move On. I think it's early in its development, but um, I'm at least glad that they're acknowledging that to to try to make some change systemically um, and create more prevention programs and try to um, address this earlier before People are just kind of floundering through it. I think what you were saying earlier about there often not being a need identified for mm-hmm. this. I, my sense is that governing bodies probably feel similarly, that they'd be more interested in investing in young, budding athletes than ones who are kind of on their way out. So yeah. it's kind of sad. So we've got so much of a listenership that is athlete-based in a lot of ways. We do so many different episodes around movement-oriented subjects. But for those that are listening and don't identify as an athlete at all, would you equate this retirement process to any other transition, life transition for other people? Definitely. And I think that was a powerful part of the research that I did. The The models and theories that are out there were at the time um, around sport retirement are based on models around death and dying and based on models around when people retire from their careers, their occupational careers. These kinds of transitions are definitely, they exist out in the world in other forms. And we've seen it practically in our Rethinking Exercise and Sport group because everyone comes to that group and not everybody has a sports story or identify as an athlete. And it's been really fun to hear their perspectives come into group of identifying just different parts of their life that they've really invested in, whether that was art or music or as a student, identifying where you're putting all your eggs in one, like a lot of your eggs in one basket of your identity is where it could be really translatable. 
Mm-hmm. Another thing that comes to mind is um, a relationship breakup. Like, yeah. it, and mm-hmm. I remember um, calling skating my boyfriend for <laughs> a long time because totally. I didn't have time for an actual person mm-hmm. boyfriend. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Uh, to equate the experience to a breakup or a death really speaks to the process of grief that someone would need to go through in a retirement. Mm-hmm. That it's not just a transition of schedule or identity, as we know. Losing a, a form of identity would be a, a huge thing to grieve. Yeah. And I think that's a, such an important point for listeners to to consider grief because I think a lot of times people, that's where maybe an eating disorder starts or they go to cross, like it's CrossFit or they're trying to avoid the grief by mm-hmm. translating it into something else potentially. And and that's where some destructive things can come in yeah. because they're, they don't, they're wanting to avoid the, the death, you know, the grief. Or the rebound of relationship. Mm-hmm. Like, right? Like, exactly. There you go. You're in love with someone and then you go yep. break some hearts. Yep. <laughs> yeah, you just turn it around and you, <laughs> yep. <laughs> so it's good to pause and consider that. And, yeah. you know, it's it's hard. Of course, too, I would I would hope that if somebody is resonating that with that right now as you're listening, I wouldn't want someone to go through that grief alone either. Right. So hopefully... If that's coming up for you, there's somebody that you can reach out to that would care about you and be able to listen to maybe that the grief that might be coming up. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And on the flip side, there's so much variety in how people respond to big transitions like this that for some people, retiring from sport or any major transition in life would just bring relief. I think it's unwise to assume that every transition would only come with hard emotion. Mm-hmm. Very good point. Chrissy, thank you so much for joining us and for talking about your skating career. I know that you haven't done that a lot in the Opal space, and it's fun to get to learn more about it. Yeah, thanks. It's definitely a new experience. If you want to learn more about Opal, make sure you follow along on social media at Opal Food and Body on Instagram, Twitter, and on Facebook. And if you want to learn more about our programming, including, of course, the sport and exercise program, make sure you find us at opalfoodandbody.com. Thank you so much to Jack Straw Cultural Center for sound engineering, to Aaron Davidson for the Appetite's original music, and to Hans Anderson for editing. Join us next time. Thanks. Thanks.